Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, welcome. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we go into our time of teaching, I'd like to highlight something that we have going on at Rocky Peaks. So on your way in, you should have gotten a program. And inside this, it tells you a lot about who we are as a church and kind of how we do the things that we do. And on the back, you'll see some of the things that we have going on in the, the next coming weeks and months. But one of the things I'd like to highlight for you is that at the end of this month, that, that weird weekend, June 30th, July 1st, we're going to be having baptisms here during our weekend service. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you have yet to be baptized, come on and take the plunge with us because it's a beautiful thing. What baptism is, is it's really like, we like to call it the marriage ceremony of the believer. And what it is, is a symbolic act that when you go under the water, you're saying that I'm dying to my old life. And when you come up out of the, out of the water, you're saying I'm embracing the new life that Jesus died to give me. And so it's a way of saying I belong to him now. And so if that's something that you want to do, that's a step you want to take in your journey as a follower of Christ, please on your, on your card inside your program, you can just simply write, give me some more information or baptism or I'm ready. Or if you'd like to call the office this week and get some more information, feel free to do that. So uh, something else is going on this weekend. What's going on today? Father's Day, that's right. And so I'd just like to do a special acknowledgement to all the fathers out there. How are you guys doing? Yeah, all right, very good. So, hey, I, I'm a dad. I have two little girls, men who are fathers. It's, it's a kind of an awesome responsibility, isn't it? There's a, there's a weight on us for that. And so what I'd like to do before we go into our time of teaching is just have a prayer over us as fathers in this place that we look to our Heavenly Father as the model for how we're called to be as, as the fathers in this world. And so would you pray with me today as we pray for the dads in the room? And so, Father in heaven, we look to you today uh, as our ultimate model of what it means to be Father. Uh, and before I pray for the dads in the room, I just I want to pray for those who are here today who are hurting because of not having a good model and not having a good father in their life. And I, I would just pray that, Lord, today you would show them clearly who you are, that because we belong to you, we have been, been adopted into your family and that you are the ultimate father to all of us. And so today on a day that may be hard for some, would you be a God of comfort and hope for them today? And then for those of us who are here and who are fathers, I just want to pray a blessing over them in this time. And I just ask that you would show us what it means to be the men that you've called us to be. That we would learn to be fathers who are men of character who are men of courage, who are men of confidence, who are men of tenderness, who know how to love our families well, and that in, in our shortcomings, we would look to you to be the God to teach us how to be the men you want us to be. And so we look to you because you are our hope today. Thank you for being the ultimate father in our lives. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, we're going to continue in our time of teaching now. And so in your programs that you got on your way in, there should be some message notes that will help you follow along today. And we're continuing in our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to get those open so that you're ready to go. And if you were here last week, you know that our very own Rodrigo Carrillas... Dre, as we call him, our high school pastor, got a chance to teach to us, and Dre did a really good job just continuing us in this series. Something that Dre pointed out last week that I didn't realize until he said this is that apparently if, you're in, if you enjoy the music of Journey, that's old man music. And so uh, I guess I'm one away from 40, so I am now old. I have to embrace that reality. But that was great. So I'm so grateful for Dre and for where he took us last week and where we're going today. But if you're new, let me catch you up to speed what 2 Corinthians is all about. It's a letter that Paul had written to the Christians in Corinth, essentially defending himself to them against some accusations brought, to, brought, brought against him by some of the teachers 
in that church. So Paul had left, some teachers had arisen, and they were basically defaming Paul. And one of their big charges against Paul is, how can you believe that Paul's a true messenger, a true apostle of Jesus? Because look at his life. His life is a mess. He's constantly going through difficulties and hardships. And if he really was a messenger of Jesus, his life should be great. He should have no challenges and no difficulties. And so Paul was writing to the Corinthians to really defend why he was a true messenger of Jesus. But it's not that he's simply trying to defend himself. What he's trying to do is defend the message he had taught them because he understands what's at stake for them. Because if they walk away from him as the messenger of Jesus, they're ultimately going to walk away from the true message of Jesus and go into a world of hurt. And so this is not so much about Paul trying to defend himself as he is the message of Jesus. And so we're going to continue in that today. And so as we jump in, I have a couple questions for you as we get started today. And so here's my first question for you. Have you ever known someone in life who was always fine? And I don't mean good looking, right? I I mean like they're always fine. Like so when you ask them, hey, how are you doing? They're like, I'm good. I'm great. How are you? Right? And it's like as you get to know them, you realize, I don't know if that's the case because as we're talking, like, I mean, your house is burning down right now and you're saying you're fine. Like there's like a disconnect. Like they have this inability to be real about what's going on in their life. Have you ever known someone like that? And it's really hard to relate with someone like that, isn't it? To have a real, true relationship with somebody who's always fine. But now, have you ever known somebody who was the opposite of that? Have you ever known somebody who was always not fine? Right? And so you go and you ask them, like, hey, what's going on? And stuff, And it's just like this dark abyss that sucks all hope out of the universe. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. And so you, when you come around them and you say, hey, how are you doing? You immediately reach, want to retract that statement. You're like, no, 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 bring it back. I didn't mean that. I meant it colloquially, like, hello, not, okay, here we go. And you're just stuck for a, a whole week with them or something. It's equally hard to have a relationship with someone like that, too, because at the same time, there seems to be some disconnect for them to know how to be real about the sense that, hey, there is hope in this world. Now, let me ask you another question. Have you ever been that person? The person who is always fine and out of touch with the reality of the struggles in your life, or the person who is so overwhelmed with the struggles in your life, you don't know how to have hope anymore? It's hard to know how to be real in life at times. And what we're going to see today as we look at what Paul's going to be writing here in 2 Corinthians is that Paul is going to give us a good glimpse of what it looks like to be a person who is truly authentic. And so let's dive in together. Let's jump into 2 Corinthians and see what's going on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. By the way, my Bible's big, not because I'm trying to show off, but I'm getting older. It's a large print Bible. (laughs) I have chosen to embrace reality today. (laughs) So this is what Paul writes to the Corinthians. So remember, he's writing this to defend himself to them. And so in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, he says this. He says, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. And one of the charges that these, these other people were bringing against Paul is that he was somebody who was just trying to take advantage of the Corinthians, which was really ironic because one of Paul's values is that he would never ask them to take care of him when he was with them. He wanted to work hard so that they could never say that you're only in this for the money, Paul. And so he's just trying to defend himself. And so verse 3, he says to them, I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. And he had articulated this to them earlier. Just look over in chapter 6 real quick for just a minute. Look at verses 11 through 13 in chapter 6. 
He says this there. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. So Paul's just pouring out his heart, his desire for them. So then back in chapter 7, verse 4, he says, I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So though there's conflict in this relationship, you just hear Paul's heart poured out towards them, how he just has a great desire for them. And then he goes on in verse 5, and he says this, For when I came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. And so now here's something that we need to understand what's going on here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's actually now reconnecting to a thought he had several chapters ago. In chapter 2, he was giving them a story of what was going on in his life. And then then he just kind of goes off on this incredible tangent for the rest of like chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And in this tangent, Paul's been really trying to defend himself as a true message. And this is what the true message of Jesus is all about. It's this exceptional tangent we've been chasing as a church all these months. And now Paul's reconnecting his thoughts that he'd gone off on this tangent. So do me a favor. Keep your finger in chapter 7. Let's go back to chapter 2 real quick so that we get what he's talking about. So we understand the train of thought that he was in before he went on his tangent. And so in chapter 2, verse 12, this is what he had written to them. He says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And and what Paul is doing is he's telling them what had been happening in his life. Because what had happened is that Paul had come back to Corinth at one time and then these new teachers had emerged in the church and were really challenging his authority, challenging who he was. And Paul realized, I have a choice to make. I can stay in Corinth and fight this, but that'll probably split the church and destroy it. So Paul had graciously left in order to not create a big scene in the church. And then the leader said, see, there goes Paul. See his tail between his legs. He doesn't care about you. And so what Paul had done is he had left, is that he had written a letter to the Corinthians, kind of a come-to-Jesus letter, that he had sent to them with, by his friend Titus to deliver to them. And so Titus goes on his way with this letter, and Paul's letting him know what he was doing. So he just continued to do what he had always done, which was proclaim the message of Jesus. So he'd left Corinth. He'd gone to the area of Troas. He started to preach the gospel of Jesus there, and people were responding, and doors were opening. But he was so concerned about the Corinthians, so overwhelmed with what was going on there, that he said, I can't focus. I have to go find Titus and figure out how they've responded. Because remember, this is back in the old school days. They don't have Facebook. They don't have email. Paul can't like, get delivery of confirmation. He's just like, I don't know if they received Timothy or they ate him or Titus. I don't know what has happened, so i got to go find out. And so he leaves Troas and heads back to Macedonia. And then he went on his tangent for all these chapters. And then we pick up the thread of thought back in chapter 7, verse 5. And so this is what he says. For when we came into Macedonia... So we left Troas, we headed back to Macedonia. We had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. 
And so as he heads into the area of Macedonia, he reconnects with Titus, and he gets to find out, Titus, how did they respond? Because that was a pretty hard letter that I wrote to them. And Titus gives Paul the good report, and so this is what he says. Verse 6, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. And so Paul gets the good report that the Corinthians had responded, and they're like, Paul, come back. We want to make things right. We want to experience what we were meant to experience all along. And so Paul is overwhelmed by the joy of this. And yet what I love that Paul does in this little section of his letter is that Paul gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to be somebody who is living life authentically. Because did you catch what he was sharing with them about how he was feeling and about what he was experiencing in life? Because look at what he says in verse 5. When we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Now, if you're trying to present the best you to someone, do you let them in on your weaknesses? Not at all. In fact, this is really kind of dumb on Paul's part at one level because they're already thinking, well, maybe he's not a true follower because he's going through hard times. And Paul's like, that's not the case. In fact, I faced hard times. Let me tell you about them. And yet at the same time, Paul isn't so overcome by his hard times that he loses sight of who God is in his life because he says, hey, there's a God who comforts the downcast and he met us and comforted us. Titus, we found Titus. And through Titus, God brought comfort into our life. And what I love about Paul is that here in this section, he gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to be a person who is truly authentic. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is use this passage as a springboard to take a look at Paul as a model of what authenticity looks like. Because I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I struggle with a clear picture of what it means to be a person who is living life authentically, and I need a model of that. And this is what I love about Paul. He gives us a picture of that. And so there in your notes, there should be a section that says Paul as a model of authenticity. And so let's unpack this as we take a look at some of the things that Paul wrote that gives us a good picture of this. But let's start with just a basic understanding of what authenticity is. And so here would be the definition of authenticity. Authenticity is being honest about two things. Your struggles and your hope. This is what we're going to see Paul showing us time and time again is that he understands that authenticity is about being honest about both your struggles and your hopes. And let me just kind of give you simple definitions of those two ideas. Here's what I would mean by struggle. Struggles would simply be this. The things that challenge you and threaten to overwhelm you. Anybody facing struggles today? Okay, we'll figure out how to get you authentic in a minute. <laughs> Anyone at all? All right, one person, two people. All right, this, we'll, we'll bring them in, don't worry. Now let me give you a definition of what I mean by hope. Hope would be the reason why you are not defined by or destroyed by your struggles. And so this is what authenticity would look like. And it's important that we understand that authenticity is learning to be honest about both because if you're only honest about one side and not the other, it's going to lead you to some ugly places in life. If you're only ever honest about your struggles and there's no hope in your life, that's going to lead you to a place called despair. But on the other side, if you're only ever honest about your hope and you don't have the ability to be honest about your struggles, that's going to lead you to a place called denial. 
that's going to lead you to a place with like, no, I'm fine, we're fine, we're all good, let's just clap and sing happy songs. No one's, no problems here, everything's good. And that's annoying, isn't it? And yet that's where oftentimes we think we have to live, and yet Jesus never calls us to live like that. See, authenticity is neither the denial of your struggles, nor is it giving in to the despair of your struggles. Authenticity is learning to live in the tension between your struggles and your hope. And what I love about Paul is that he shows us what that looks like from his own life. And so there on your notes, you'll see uh, a breakdown of what I mean by struggles. Because I think as we talk about struggles, we've got to get clear. I think there's kind of two types of struggles in life, kind of two main categories of areas of life where we struggle. And so here's what those two types would be. Here would be one type of struggle. Your circumstances. And then here would be the other type of struggle, your shortcomings. And so as you begin to think about the struggles you face in life and learning to be honest, I think that we have to come to a place where we, we understand what it looks like to be honest about both my circumstances and my shortcomings. And so let me give you some definitions of what I mean by both of those so you got some handles on that. But here's what I mean by your struggles in the form of your circumstances. That would be the hardships in life that come at you. That would be the phone call from the doctor with the news you were fearing. That would be your boss calling you in and saying that he hopes you have good luck finding your new job. That would be the spouse that has walked out on you. That would be the ridicule and scorn you face in life as a follower of Jesus because people, even in your own family, may think that you're crazy. That's hardships that come out you. That's the struggles of the circumstances of your life. Anyone facing struggles like that today? Yeah. But there's another kind of struggle that we face, and that's the struggle of our shortcomings. And so if the struggle of our circumstances are the hardships that come at us, the struggle of our shortcomings are the hardships that come out of us. And here's what I mean by that. It's that time you did that thing that you swore you would never do again. And you hurt the person that you swore you would never hurt them again, and yet you did it. It's those times in your life where you say, hey, I want to do the right thing and the good thing, but I just can't seem to find it in me to do it. It's your dysfunction. It's your brokenness. It's what the Bible calls sin. And that's not a popular word, but let me just give you a simple definition of sin. Doing the wrong thing. Not doing the right thing. Anybody struggle with shortcomings today? Wow, we're getting there. We're getting there. And yet here's what I love about Paul, is that he gives us a clear picture of what it looks like to be authentic about both your struggles and your hopes. And he shows us both types of struggles and yet the hope that we can still have. And so let's spend some time walking through some of the things that he wrote that give us a picture of this because I think it's important that we understand what this looks like if we're going to begin to do this in our own lives. And so there's four passages there that I want to walk through. The first two are Paul being authentic about his struggles in the area of his circumstances and the hope that he still has. And these both flow out of the the book of 2 Corinthians that we've been studying because the model of authenticity that Paul primarily shows us in the book of 2 Corinthians is this kind of authenticity, what it looks like to be honest about the struggles and your circumstances and the hope that you have. And this is fascinating that this is the type of authenticity that Paul would reveal to the Corinthians because this is the very charge brought against him. 
How can you believe that Paul is a true apostle of Jesus if you look at all the crazy hard things he goes through? And yet Paul doesn't gloss over that. In fact, Paul seems to amplify that. Here's the reality. Here's the truth about what I've gone through, and yet here's my hope. And so look at the things that Paul wrote to them earlier in this letter. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, this is what he tells them. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. And so word had gotten back to Corinth about something difficult that Paul had faced in Asia. And so guess who was saying, therefore you can't trust Paul, those leaders that were, that were maligning him. And so what I love about Paul is that he doesn't try to downplay it to the Corinthians. He's like, hey, I'll be honest about it. In fact, I'll tell you exactly how hard it was. This is how bad it was. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. That's pretty bad. <laughs> And he's just being straight up honest with them. This is the struggles that we faced. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. And yet I love that Paul doesn't just wallow there. Paul shows us what it looks like to be honest about our hope as well. Because look at what he says next. He says, but this happened that we might, rely not, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And if there's only one thing you hear today, this might be the thing you need to hear today. God, why would you let me go through that? And what Paul is saying is that God will let you go through things in life so that you will learn to rely on him and not yourself. Because God is the one who knows how to raise the dead, which means I can hang out and rely on him. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. And so when God takes me through hard times, he wants me to know who I can put my full trust and faith in. So that might just be the thing that you need to grab onto today. And so this is what Paul's saying. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Do you hear the hope? And now look at what he says. On him we have set our hope. Okay, hold on. Everybody wake up for a minute. Wake up. On him we have set our hope. Hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. He's showing us what authenticity looks like. He's being honest about his struggles and he's being honest about his hope. And then look what he says to them again later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 10 he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so Paul's using the analogy of, a, of a, a jar of clay. And back in those days, if you wanted to find out if this was a trustworthy vessel, like that it would hold something, you would put a light in it and you'd put it in a dark room. And if you could see the cracks in the pot, you'd see the light shining through, you realize that the used pot salesman was selling you a lemon. And so that would be like, okay, I don't want this pot. And yet what Paul's doing is he's taking this analogy to say, hey, in my life, I'm a cracked pot. And yet there is a power at work within me, and it's him. And so the reason why God likes to put himself in cracked pots is so that people will see it's not us, it's him when he shows up in our lives. And so I love this. Paul's just being honest. He's like, I don't, have, I don't have it all together. Life is hard. There's struggles. I'm a cracked pot. But the hope I have is that the one who is at work within me is greater than this. So look at what he goes on to say. We are hard-pressed on every side. The cracked pot struggles in life, but not crushed because there's someone at work within us 
perplexed. Now, doesn't that just in a morbid sort of way make you feel good that Paul was perplexed in life too? Like just a little bit, just a little sense like, okay, well, if he didn't have it all figured out, I guess it's okay that I don't have it all figured out. We're twisted like that. But sometimes I kind of take comfort (laughs) when I read that, right? And and yet think about what Paul is saying is there's things that God is doing in my life that I don't always understand. I don't always get. I'm confused by that because I'm the cracked pot. And yet even though I'm perplexed, I'm not in despair because I have hope of who he is in my life. Persecuted. And for Paul, persecuted does not mean I'm the brunt of the jokes at the office because people know I'm a Christian. For Paul, persecuted means beaten, thrown in prison, life threatened time and time again. And so the cracked pot who is Paul knows what it's like to be persecuted, but his hope is that even though he's persecuted, he's not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And I love what Paul shows us there. This is what it looks like to be authentic. I'm going to be honest about the struggles of my circumstances, and I'm going to be honest about the hope of who he is in my life. But Paul also shows us what it looks like to be honest, to be authentic and honest about our struggles in the areas of our shortcomings and honest about the hope we have in who he is still in our life. So look at what he says in these next passages here. In a letter that he wrote to a younger pastor, to to this guy named Timothy, Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. And now think about this just for a second before we read this. If you're the mentor writing to your mentee, don't you kind of want to present yourself as having it all together without any issues in your life so that they'll look up to you and think you're the man? Yeah, not Paul. Look at what he says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And if you know anything about Paul's life, you know exactly what he's talking about. Because if you read in the book of Acts, when we first meet Paul, his name is Saul, and he is not a friend of Christians. Paul is a part of the religious establishment in his day, and he's so anti this new movement of Jesus that he goes to the religious leaders and he says, can I have permission to go and arrest them? And they say, yes, Paul, go after them. And so he chases after them and he arrests them. He has them beaten. He has them executed. This is who he was before he met Christ. And then Christ shows up in his life, kind of hits him upside of the head, and wakes him up to the reality of who Jesus really is. And suddenly Paul realizes his entire life has been turned right side up. And so he's letting Timothy know this. And so he says these things. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Grace is when God gives you something you do not deserve. And Paul realized that God had given him a whole lot of grace. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So here's Paul's claim to fame. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. See, Paul was painfully aware of his shortcomings. But he was not defined by them because he understood who Jesus was in his life. And so look at what he goes on to, goes on to say. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy. I was not given what I did deserve. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. 
And see, if you're here today and you're asking yourself the question, could God really love someone like me? All you have to do is talk to Paul. And what Paul would tell you is absolutely he can love someone like you because he loved someone like me. And if there was a worst of the worst, I'm on the top of that list, friend. You don't even come close to me. And if he could love me, guess what? You have hope today too. And I love what Paul is saying here. And as Paul is telling this to Timothy, he can't help but go into a declaration of praise of who God is in his life. Because look at what he says there in that last little sentence. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so here's Paul being radically honest about his shortcomings and yet holding on to the hope that he has and who Jesus is and what he's done for him. And then one other, one other verse here where Paul shows us this authenticity in the area of our shortcomings. In 1 Corinthians 15, this was a letter he had written earlier to the Corinthians. And he says to them, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And stop and think about this. Again, what was the big gripe being raised against Paul to the Corinthians? How could he be a real apostle? Look at all the things that are going on in his life. And yet Paul doesn't hide these things. He doesn't soften it. He just simply says to them, I don't even deserve this because of who I was. And yet Jesus has done something in my life. And so he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because of what he's done for me, this is why I stand before you as his messenger. Not because I'm great, but because he is great. And so he says, and his grace to me was not without effect. In other words, God's grace in my life has not been wasted because I have been changed and now I'm living for him. And so he says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so what I love about Paul is that he's such an incredible model for us of what authenticity looks like. What it looks like to be honest about both our struggles and our hopes. Our struggles and our circumstances, our struggles and our shortcomings, and yet the hope that we can have because of who he is in our life. And yet, do you ever struggle to be real? Do you ever struggle to be authentic? Do you ever struggle to be honest about your struggles, about your circumstances, about your shortcomings? Do you ever struggle to be honest about your hope? Because if you're anything like me, it's hard to be authentic in life. And one of the reasons why authenticity breaks down is because we lose sight of a couple of things that are really important. And we will always lose the ability to be honest when we lose sight of these two things. Authenticity breaks down when you lose sight of who you are and who God is. And here's why that happens. See, it's hard to be honest about my struggles, my circumstances, and my shortcomings when I lose sight of who I am or I don't know who I am. And it's hard to be honest about my hope when I lose sight of who God is or I don't know who God is. And when that happens, when I, when I lose the clarity of understanding who I am and who he is, I lose the ability to be authentic in life and I start to play the games of denial or despair. And yet the answer to be, becoming authentic in life is to gain clarity on who you are and who he is because it begins to lead us to freedom to be authentic. 
And so let's drill down why this happens. Let's drill down where this breakdown takes place and why it's hard for us to be authentic when we lose sight of ourselves and who God is. And let's start specifically why it's hard to be honest about our shortcomings in the area of our, our struggles in the area of our shortcomings. Why it's hard to be honest about that. Because here's the thing, it's hard to be honest about your shortcomings when you're unwilling to face the truth about yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Looking in the mirror and just being honest about who you are and where your struggles are and where your shortcomings are. Here's the thing, if you're anything like me, you suffer from a serious condition called better thanism. Better than ism is a serious condition that affects 10 in 10 Americans. <laughs> this is what better than ism is. It's a psychological condition in which I believe I am a good person by comparing myself to that guy or those people. I am better than them. Therefore, I am a good person. Anyone struggle with that? Here's how you know you struggle with better than ism. Let's try and diagnose this for a minute. Answer this question, not out loud, in your head. Are you a good person? Here's how you know you struggle with better than ism. Because when I ask you that question, you begin to immediately ask a question inside your head. Well, compared to who? And so somebody asks me, hey, Joel, are you a good person? Immediately I start thinking, well, compared to who? And immediately I begin to line up humanity on a line. And I start to say, well, bad is over there. No offense to you sitting over there. It's just the illustration right now. Bad is over there. And gooder is over here. And I'm somewhere on this line. And so am I a good person? Well, compared to who? And guess who I, looked, I like to look at to answer the question? Everyone on this side of me. And so I look down that line. Well, am I a good person? Well, compared to who? Well, compared to Hitler? Yeah, I'm a Boy Scout. I mean, I dropped out of Boy Scouts, but still, you understand what I'm saying. Compared to him, absolutely I'm a good person. But then there's those annoying people who are on this side of you, right? And you try not to look at them too much. But every once in a while, we like to make movies that make us feel inspired or really bad about ourselves. And so they get in our face, don't they? And so, Joel, are you a good person? And so I, I, I avoid it. But every once in a while, I see Mother Teresa. And I realize, well, I mean, compared to her, am I a good person? Well, I got room for improvements, right? And this is how we play the game of better than ism. When I look down at the people who are far worse than me and I compare myself to them, I try to magnify my own sense of goodness. But then when I look at the people who are better than me, I try to minimize my feelings of badness. And yet here's the fundamental flaw with better than ism. We're comparing ourselves to the wrong people. Because there is only one person to whom we are to be compared, and it's the one in whose image we were created. And he created us to be like him and to reflect his goodness, his beauty, his truth in this world. And so when I ask you the question, are you a good person compared to the one you were created to be like, compared to God, that becomes a harder question to answer, doesn't it? So let's make it harder. Let's drill down a little bit deeper now. And let me ask a question to those of you who are here who call yourselves 
Christian, who call yourselves followers of Christ, I want to ask a question to my brothers and sisters right now. In light of the question, are you a good person, here's a question I have for anyone here who calls themselves a Christian. Why did you come to Jesus in the first place? Was it because you believed you were such a good person that you were going to help him out? Hey, Savior of the world, I got some pointers for you on that one. Here I am. Let's do this. Or was it because you realized that he was such a good person that you needed him to help you out? So what was it you needed him to help you out of? When I was a kid, I dislocated my elbow. Very fun day. And I remember when this event happened, my elbow snapped out like it dislocated, but dislocated weird into like a right angle. And so my arm was locked into this position. And immediately I realized something was wrong because I looked at my hand locked. The muscles had seized. There was extreme pain and I could no longer move my arm the way it was meant to be used. And immediately I realized this is not good. Brilliant realization in that moment. And so I remember going to the hospital, going to the emergency room, and the doctors take x-rays to see what's going on. And then I remember the doctor comes in, and he walks up to me, and he just says, young man, this is going to hurt a lot. (laughs) But I promise you, it's for your good. Okay. (laughs) And then he grabbed my arm, and he pulled, twisted, and popped And it suddenly went back in place. And he was telling the truth. (laughs) It hurt so bad for a moment. And then suddenly, everything was in alignment again. And my arm was how it was supposed to be. And it was a painfully beautiful moment. And what we're chasing after right now is the same thing. Because when you start to ask the question, who am I and who is God? It becomes painfully beautiful when you get to the answers to those questions. The clearest way I know of to answer the question, who are you and who is God, the fastest way to get clarity on those questions is to contemplate the cross. Because when you look to the cross, it becomes really clear who you are and who he is. Because when you look to the cross, you know the answer to the question, and you see clearly who you are, because this is what the cross tells you, who you are. You are a person who is so messed up, who is so broken, who is so dysfunctional, that Jesus had to die on the cross to rescue you and to redeem you. And to pay the price for your shortcomings. See, that's the painful part. See, when I look to the cross, I know the answer to the question, am I a good person? Because a good person doesn't need Jesus to do that for them. And I need Jesus. And yet the beautiful part of looking at the cross is that it also shows me who he is. 
Because when I look to the cross, it shows me who God is, that God is good in every sense of the word. That God is so good that out of his goodness, he paid the price for my shortcomings. The reason I am let off the hook is that Jesus chose to get on it for me. That God is so good that out of his goodness, he has loved me so much that he sent his son to die to give me life. The cross shows me who God is. That God loves me so much that even though I know who I am, he still loves me. And that's the beautiful moment when I look at the cross. And when you begin to get clarity on this issue, who you are and who God is, it's a painfully beautiful moment that begins to lead you to freedom. The freedom to be a person who is real about your struggles and your hope. And so when my life reveals my shortcomings, when my shortcomings surface, Because I know who I am and who he is. I don't have to hide from them. I don't have to pretend like they're not a part of my life. I don't have to pretend like this is a bad thing. I don't have to run away because of them. Because I know who he is in my life. And so when my shortcomings surface, they shouldn't surprise me because that's who I am apart from him. See, I'm a man who struggles with lust because that's who I am apart from him. I'm a man who struggles with pride and arrogance because that's who I am apart from him. I am a man who struggles with greed and selfishness because that is who I am apart from him. I am a man who struggles with bitterness and anger and resentment and envy because that is who I am apart from him. Am I the only one? And yet the hope, the hope that I have is that because of who he is and what he's done for me, I don't have to be that guy anymore. He set me free if I will learn to walk in honesty with him. See, when these things surface in my life, I go to him and I say, this is why you came for me in the first place. Will you help me? And Jesus sets us free. It's why Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. Men and women, if you belong to Jesus, the hope that you have today is that you are a new creation. The struggles and your shortcomings no longer define who you you are. They simply point you to the reason why you need Jesus. And so you go to him and you say, make me new, help me out because I'm a mess without you. Thank you. Thank you for who you are in my life. And so when we contemplate the cross, We get clarity on who we are and who he is and that gives us great hope in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our shortcomings. It also gives us great hope in the midst of our struggles and our circumstances as well. And here's why. Because at one level it kind of makes sense. Okay, I understand why looking at the cross now gives me incredible hope because of what he's done for me in the area of my shortcomings. But how does that apply to the area of my, my circumstances? Because of my short, shortcomings are what come out of me and he's paid the price for the darkness within me. How does this whole thing apply to the darkness around me that comes at me? Well, here's how it works in that arena. This is why the cross is so helpful for giving us clarity on who we are and who is. Because when you look at the cross, you realize that you are a person who is passionately, fiercely, deeply, fully loved by God. And no circumstance today can change that. 
No circumstance can, today can change what Christ has done for you on the cross. And you suddenly realize if this is what you have done for the darkness within me, if you're powerful enough to deal with that, then I know you can deal with the darkness around me. And it allows you to be authentic with God about the struggles and the circumstances you're facing in light of the hope you have in who he is in your life. And so when you're facing hardship and circumstances that are overwhelming you, you can be real about it. You don't have to pretend it's not a big deal. You can say, God, this sucks. And this hurts. And this is hard. And this is not how I would want it to be. But God, I know that you are still good. And you are still God. And you are working in my life. And in you I have placed my hope that you have something better for me. And someday I will see that. So until that day, I am going to be honest with you about my struggles and the hope I have in you. As you lead me into the future you have for me. And so that's why we have to get clear on who we are and who he is. Because it helps us learn how to be people who are truly authentic. Truly honest about both our struggles and our hopes. And we know how to live in the tension between the two in light of who he is in our life. And so how do we do that? Because that's, that's all fine and dandy <laughs> conceptually, but how, how do we begin to really begin to do this? And so let me share some things with you, some things that I think can help you as you begin to do this in your life. And so this would be the first, the first thought or the first idea. That if you're going to learn to be a person who unleashes the power of authenticity in your life, you need to learn how to embrace reality. Because remember, what are the two mistakes that we make with authenticity? It's either not being honest about our struggles or it's not being honest about our hope. And when we do that, we're either running to a place of despair or we're living in a place of denial. And here's the interesting thing about both denial and despair. They're both forms of escapism. That when I'm living in denial, I'm trying to escape the reality of my struggles. And yet when I'm living in a place of despair, I'm denying the reality of my hope because at some level I take comfort in my misery. And yet what he calls us to be are people that have lived in both. And so when you get a hold of Christianity, Christianity properly understood teaches us how to be real. And so I want to show you something that Paul writes to the Corinthians in his earlier letter to them. That he wants them to understand about who they were before Christ and who they are now. That he's helping them understand how to be authentic about their shortcomings in life. And so this is going to tweak us a little bit, but hang with me. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, this is what he writes. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me pause there because when you hear something like that, it's very easy to miss the point of what Paul's trying to say here because we can get on one of two bandwagons. I think one bandwagon that we can jump onto is the bandwagon of how dare you say that to me, I'm offended by what you just said. Because if you pay attention to what he said, it's not very politically correct, right? And it's very easy to hear what he said and to be so offended by it that we miss the point of what he's saying. And so if you find yourself jumping on that bandwagon today, if you find yourself offended, all I'm asking you to do is say, can you just look a little bit beyond your offense and ask the question, is what he's saying true? 
Because if what he's saying is true, this is the greatest thing you need to hear today. Because there's hope that follows what he's talking about. But there's another bandwagon we can jump on when you hear what Paul says there. It's that better than bandwagon, right? Because you look at all the things that he's saying and you can say, oh, that's right, Paul, those bad people. You get them. Go get them, Paul. You're on the list. (laughs) Right? As much as you want to look at those bad people, friend, you're on the list. I know I'm on the list. So don't miss out on the point Paul's trying to say because somehow you think it's for those people. It's for you too. So just to be clear, let's read it again so we're all either offended or awakened, all right? (laughs) Or do you not know that that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Implication, it's easy to be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers. Slanderer is somebody who talks bad about another person. So anytime you posted something negative about someone on Facebook, guess what? You're on the list right? Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Notice the past tense. And that's the hope that we have is that this is past tense language he's talking about. And he goes on and now this is the hope that we have in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But you were washed You were sanctified. Sanctified is a fancy Bible word that simply means to be set apart for what God wants for you. That when what Jesus has done for us, he's not only made us clean, we've now been set apart to be the people we were created to be to live for God in the first place. So you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That means that in God's eyes, you no longer stand guilty for your shortcomings, that Jesus paid the price for that. So you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what it means to embrace reality is this. Stop living like who you were and start living like who you are because of what he's done for you. And then the next thing to do as we begin to try to unleash the power of authenticity in our life is not simply embrace reality, but as we go through life facing our struggles, call out to God. Call out to God that he would help you in the midst of what you're facing in life. See, when you understand who God is, you realize that you can trust him in the midst of whatever you're experiencing today. And that a cry to God for help is an affirmation of who he is in your life. But you'll notice that I put the word two in parentheses because I'm trying to get two points for one here on this. (laughs) And so not only do we need to learn to call out to God for help, but we also need to learn to call out God to be who he said he would be in our lives. To call him out to keep the promises that he has made to us as we go through life. And to call out God is totally appropriate because you're his kid and you're saying, Dad, would you be who you said you would be in my life? Which means we have to be clear on what it is that God has promised us and what he hasn't promised us. Because if you're calling out God to keep a promise in your life that he hasn't made, he's like, I never said that. So you've got to be clear on what those promises are so you know what to call him out for. Hey, God, this is who you said you'd be. Would you be this in my life? And so look as an example there what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7 about a promise that God has made to us. And this is what Paul writes. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And if there's ever a passage of scripture that makes me just want to hit Paul, it's this. Right? <laughs> Because when you're in the midst of a circumstance that's overwhelming you and, and you're just like, hey, rejoice in the Lord. You're like, are you kidding me? 
And yet understand, Paul is not saying rejoice in the circumstance. He's saying rejoice in who? The Lord. Rejoice in the one who's greater than what you're going through today. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. When the angels proclaimed Jesus' birth, who did they say he was? Emmanuel. God with us. And then as Jesus was getting ready to leave, he said, I'm sending another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with you, to be in you. And so then Paul goes on to say, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And again, I just want to say, Paul, are you serious? Don't be anxious about anything. I'm anxious about everything. I'm just wound tight that way. That's who I am. You're saying don't be anxious about anything? And yet the key word to understand what he says there is with thanksgiving. Because what Paul is saying is as you come before God with everything and anything that's going on in your life, whatever the situation is, bring it to him by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, make your request to him. And I, I think that there are times in my life where life is so hard and I'm spinning and I'm so overwhelmed. I think, what on earth do I have to be thankful for? Look to the cross. Look to the cross, and suddenly I realize I have everything to be thankful for. And so God, in the midst of this situation, I am overwhelmed and I'm coming undone, but thank you that you are good and that you have rescued me. And then begin to present your request to God, and then this is what he says will happen. And then God will make everything okay, and everything will feel good, and no more pain, and no more hurting, and you'll get your job back, and everything. Blah, blah. <laughs> Some of you just got really excited, didn't you? <laughs> Man, I wish it said that. That's not what it says, is it? Because that's not what God has promised. This is what it says. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But God has not promised to protect us from pain. He has promised to protect us in the pain. And that's what we need to call him out on as God in our life. Hey, God, this is hard and this hurts, but you said that you would have power in my life in the form of peace, and so that's what I'm calling you out on. Would you give me your peace? Would you guard my heart and my mind in the midst of this so that I can be that cracked pot that shows to the world your power at work within me? And so this is what we need to be able to do to call out to God. And then this last idea, this last thing then, if we're going to begin to unleash the power of authenticity in our lives. We need to learn to walk openly with others. Because it's one thing to learn to be authentic with God and to be honest about your struggles with him. It's a totally other thing to learn to be authentic with other people, isn't it? And to, to let the masks down and to let somebody in, somebody who really truly knows who you are, and say, friend, here are, here are the things I'm struggling with. And yet you understand that's the freedom we've been given with one another as we go through life together. Because here's the thing. We all have issues. We all have shortcomings. That's why we all need Jesus together. So if someone comes to you and says, here's my struggles, we should never go, <gasps> We should say, me too. That's why I need Jesus too. That's why we're learning to walk together to encourage one another on the journey. 
A couple weeks ago, we wrapped up our life groups for the, the session before we took our summer break. And oftentimes what we do in that last week of life group is we just kind of come around and say, what, it, what has God shown you? What has God taught you? What have you appreciated about being in this group? And so as our group was sharing, several people were just saying that as they went through this last session together, it was so refreshing and comforting to hear someone else share what they were facing. And for them to be able to say, me too. I've experienced that too. I've struggled with that too. And that there was great freedom to suddenly realize that you are not the only one struggling with whatever it is you're struggling with. And yet the cool thing about us doing community together is that we don't simply stop there. Because if all you ever do is stop there, me too, me too, me too, you're just a group that commiserates together. The great thing about what God has done in us is that we can fan the flame of hope in one another's lives. That yeah, hey, me too, but guess what? God can get us beyond this as he works within us, which is why we're called to do community and relationship together. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about this idea, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so what this means is that we're called to do life together authentically and openly. But it's hard at times because oftentimes we won't always like each other because that person's struggles come through and it offends you or it hurts you. And yet here's the thing. In the same way, I shouldn't be surprised when my shortcomings surface. I shouldn't be surprised when yours surface because you've got issues too. And what that means is that I should extend to you the same grace that he's extended me. And so when I come into a relationship with someone and we're called to encourage one another on the journey and suddenly I don't like you, we have to figure that out instead of throwing in the towel and walking away. We need to come together and say, hey friend, there's something here and I don't like who you are and I'm pretty sure you don't like who I am, but we have to figure this out because what God has called us to do in one another's lives is too important to miss out on that. And we have to fight for the relationships God wants us to have. And then oftentimes I'll hear this complaint raised against the church. Someone will often say, well, I don't think I want to go to church because that place is just full of hypocrites. Man, I love it when somebody's willing to be that honest with me if they know, like, I'm a pastor and they're like, oh, you people, whatever. But I, like, at one level, I really love that because this person's just being real. We can have a conversation. And, and so oftentimes what I love to do is to be real back with them and to simply say, of course it is. You know why the church is filled with hypocrites? Because the world is filled with hypocrites. And so if you want to go somewhere where there are no hypocrites, definitely don't come to church. But guess what? Don't go to the grocery store either, or the gas station, or Costco, because I've seen them. They're everywhere. And, right? And, and here's the thing. If you want to go where there are no hypocrites, go find a cave and close yourself off from the world, but you'll at least have one there with you. Because a hypocrite is somebody who says, this is what we should be, and this is what I do, and they don't always connect, right? And so what we're trying to be together in community is a place where we're being honest hypocrites. Friends, here's my struggles, and here's why I need you to help me with this, because I don't want to be that guy anymore. So would you speak truth into my life and encouragement and help me become that person? And so if you came here today and you were kind of worried if this would be a place full of hypocrites, welcome to the club. You're going to fit right in. 
And God loves you. That's why you're here today. And so this is what it looks like to be authentic and to begin to do these things in life. And so I want to encourage you in this time to think clearly on the question of who you are and who God is. And if you need clarity on that today, I want to encourage you to contemplate the cross. Because when you get clarity on that, not only do you learn how to be authentic, you understand that you have reason to worship the one who is your hope. And that's what we're going to do right now as we go into this time of worship together. That we're going to go before the one who has saved us, the one who has freed us, the one who gives us life and gives us hope. And what I want to encourage you to do in this time is to come before him and to be honest with him about your struggles today. The struggles of your circumstances, the struggles of your shortcomings in light of who he is. Because Jesus told us, hey, in this world, you will have trouble, but take hearts. I have overcome the world. And so we walk with the one who has overcome, and we belong to him now, which means that we too shall overcome. And so let me pray, and we'll go into this time. And so, Father, we come into your presence in this place, and God, today some of us, we're hurting, and we're barely hanging on by a thread, and we're struggling desperately with our circumstances or with our shortcomings, and today we just need to see a glimpse of who you are in our life. And so, God, today as we come before you, would you show yourself to us? Would you be the God who you said you would be? Would you help us understand that because of you, we have hope today. That we don't have to be defined by our struggles, by our shortcomings, and we don't have to be defeated by our circumstances and those struggles. That because of you and who you are today, we have hope. That we have a better day prepared for us and we can become a better person, not because of our greatness, but because of yours. And because of your spirit at work within us. And so we come into your presence in this time, in this moment, and we want to declare who you are in our life so that we can have the hope of you at work within us. Amen. Well, as you go today, may you learn to be a person who is real. And may you live in that authenticity because what the world needs to see is not people who have it all together. What the world needs to see are cracked pots who have hope. And so may you be that cracked pot who lives in the reality of your hope. God bless you. Next week is going to be a great week because we're going to be continuing together in the story of what Paul's writing here. And we're going to learn what does it look like to turn from our past and truly turn into the future that God has set us free to live. And so I hope you'll come back with us next week. But until then, have a great day. God bless you. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For lead pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.